0: Let me just kind of catch up to speed a little bit with what we've been doing in this sermon series. So throughout this series, what we've been doing is uh, we've actually been trying to give all of us a big picture understanding uh, of the entire Bible. And so, really, we've been saying that over the course of this series, we're trying to orient ourselves to an overview of what the Bible teaches. And the reason that we've been doing this, you might remember if you've been with us, is we said that probably all of us, my guess is every single one of us in this room, are probably at least somewhat familiar with Bible stories, right? So, that's just my guess. My guess is uh, even if you didn't grow up in the church, or even if you're not a Bible person, or even if you're not a follower of Jesus, I think all of us are probably at least somewhat familiar uh, with the story some of the stories in the Bible. And so maybe you've, you know, you've heard of the story of David and Goliath, or you've, you know, you've heard of the story of Daniel on the lion's den and those type of things. But here's what we said. We said that while all of us, probably all of us are somewhat familiar with Bible stories, we said probably far less of us are familiar with the Bible story, right? That is the singular story uh, that the Bible is communicating and is telling us. And here's what we said. We said that to understand the Bible, as a collection of a bunch of little stories, each with their own moral, and each with their own you know, kind of plot line, and each with their own hero. We said, that's actually not the best way to understand the Bible. We said, a better way to understand the Bible is that the Bible is one united, singular story, that yes, there's different parts to that, but that it's actually one plot line, it's one meta-narrative, and it's actually uh, highlighting one hero. We said it's actually the best way to understand the Bible. And here's what we said. We said that for many of us, we, we might not understand the Bible that way. And so over the course of the series, we said, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to help us get a big picture overview. We're trying to orient ourselves to the story of the Bible. One of the ways we've been doing that is we've been revisiting every week this roadmap. We said, here's a very, very simple roadmap. If, you, if you're if you like, how do you simplify the whole story of the Bible kind of in one snapshot? We said, this is actually a good way to do it. And we said, here it is. Here's the, basically the story of the Bible. It is these 10 mile markers, number one, It's a story that God creates, that we rebel, that God promises and we wander, that God builds and we destroy, the Father sends, the Son rescues, the Spirit indwells, and God reigns. And we said, there you have it, kind of in a simple snapshot, that is the big story of the Bible. And so throughout the series, we've actually been each week looking at, at each of these different mile markers and taking a week and kind of talking about that. And here's what we said. We said that our hope, we actually have a few goals uh, through this series. And we said our goals are really this, that by the end of this time, that if you've been with us in this whole series, that you would be able to, first off, that you'd be able to know this, right? So we want, we want everyone to know this, to be aware and to be familiar with the big story of the Bible, but not just to know it. We said our second goal is that we want to invite everyone to live this story, that to orient your life to this story. Because here's what we believe at Grace Church with all of our heart. We believe that this is not just a story, we believe that this is actually the story. This is the story of humanity, and we believe this is our story that this is a story that continues and that, that if we wanna find purpose and meaning in this life, it comes by rightly orienting ourselves and locating ourselves within it. So we want us to know it, want us to live it. And then the last thing is we wanna to equip to give it away. And so especially for those of us who follow Christ, we said by the end of the series, our hope is that you would be able to articulate this and you would be able to give this to the next generation, to other people in your lives and to kind of do that. So we wanna know it, I wanna live it and give it away. So, so far what we've done, is we've talked about God creates, we spent a week doing that, we've discussed we rebel, we've processed through God promises, we talked about we wander, and we talked about God builds. And so if you missed any of those previous conversations, by the way, I'd encourage you, you can go back, you can listen to all of those on our podcast, our app, our website. But today what we're gonna do, we're gonna zoom in, we're gonna talk about the next part, and that is this, we're gonna be talking about this part of the story, and that is that we destroy. Because this is the part of the story that we're gonna focus in on a little bit together. now. Before we jump into this and we start kind of unpacking this, I think I, it's important that I just mention this. You, you may be noticed um, that next week, we're gonna get to the part of the story where the Father sends. And that, by the way, is all about Christmas. And so that is about the arrival of Jesus. It's about the birth of Jesus. So that's coming next week. So next week, we're gonna, next weekend, we're gonna talk about the arrival. It's gonna be awesome. And then at those Christmas Eve services, we're gonna get a chance to really talk about and celebrate the arrival and the birth of Jesus Christ. It's gonna be a blast. I also just wanna let you know, I think it's worth mentioning, um, that, uh, that if you're a person who maybe knows somebody who is spiritually seeking, or if you know somebody right now um, in your life who is looking for a church or someone who's going through a difficult time, at those Christmas Eve services, we are going to do our best, our team, me and our team are gonna do our best to try to talk about the hope of Jesus Christ in the most clear and accessible way that we know how. And so I I just want to tell you that we would love to partner with you, and that would be a great thing to invite people to, all right? So there's six different options to do that, but I wanted to let you know about that. But the reason I tell you that is because next week, we're going to talk about the birth and arrival of Jesus Christ, and as many of you know, that actually is the beginning of the New Testament. So the New Testament begins with the birth of Christ. What that means is, is it means that my task today is to summarize the rest of the Old Testament, All right, so that's my task before me. And if you've ever read the Old Testament, you know that is not a small task. And i just tell you right before we jump in that any attempt to try to summarize basically the bulk of the Old Testament in one message is always gonna fall a little bit short. But I think that this is deeply, deeply significant and important that we focus on this part of the story. Because I think to miss this part of the story is really to miss the big story, the whole story that God is intending to tell us, right? And I think, especially when we talk about the significance of the Old Testament, I think that it's actually particularly important for the people in this room, and here's why. Because we live in a culture today where we have some issues as it relates to the Old Testament of the Bible. I mean, we live in a society that takes an issue with the Bible in general, But I think even more specifically, we take issue with the Old Testament. I would even say that maybe for some of us who are in the Bible-believing community, that if we were being honest, that we might have some issues with the Old Testament. And so I'll just give you a few, a few that maybe come up. And I think these are very understandable. Here's the first issue that I think many people have, that maybe some of us have with the Old Testament. First off, if you ever read it, you'll realize real quick, there's like a bunch of rituals that are in the Old Testament. So there's all this kind of confusing stuff that you read about. And so there's, you know, there's a temple and there's um, sacrifices and there's animals and priests that are killing these animals. And it's just, honestly, it seems a little archaic to us and it seems a little confusing to us when we read about that. So you have that, right? Which already kind of creates a little bit of disconnect. But the other thing you see in the Old Testament, another issue I think we take is that there's all these like strange laws and commandments. And so if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see, There's all these commandments and laws that God is giving to his people. And some of them, like some of them, we have no problem with, we actually really like. So for example, I think we still really like, thou shall not kill. I think we're all like pro that law. But then there's other laws that are in there that are just like bizarre, right? Like dietary restrictions and the kind of fiber and fabric you can wear in your clothes. And we're like, that's just so weird to us. And I think maybe the biggest issue that we take with the Old Testament in our society and our culture today, quite honestly, is probably the death and violence that you you see in the Old Testament. Without a doubt, if you've ever tried to embark on the journey of reading through the entire Old Testament, you've been confronted with this, it is not G-rated. Uh, and there is a lot, there's a lot of violence and there's a lot of some really messy and some really, really difficult things to read through when you read the Old Testament. And I think uh, for, for some people today, we read it and we say, why does it seem like in the Old Testament, it seems like God is, I don't know, maybe more angry or something. And then when you get in the New Testament, it's like you got Jesus and it's, it seems like a, maybe more love and uh, grace and peace and all that kind of stuff. And it makes us wonder like, what happened? Like, did, did God go through anger management courses between the Old and New Testament? Is that what, what happened? Or did he just, you know, I need to chill out here a little bit, is that what happened? And I think that it creates some, some, some issues for us. And because of this, I think what happens is many people conclude, we just don't need the Old Testament. We just, we just don't need it. Let's just skip that. And let's just get on to Jesus and let's get on to the kind of fast forward to the good part of the story. In fact, can I just tell you, this is just my guess. This is my guess based on my experience in ministry. My guess is even for those of us who would consider ourselves part of the Bible-believing community, my guess is that, that many of us, if not most of us, have maybe never read the whole thing. And my guess is the parts of the Bible that we haven't read probably are parts of the Old Testament. And the reason I think is because we think it's, it's really just not that important. We don't need it. It's old. It's the Old Testament. There's a new one. So we'll focus on the new part about Jesus and we could just forget about all of that. But my hope today is to show you why I think, why I think that we need to correct that. Why I think the Old Testament is vitally important to understanding the story. Now, if you think about it, your Old Testament is the bulk of your Bible. And to skip it, I think is to skip so much of what God intends for us to know And it's to learn. So my hope is to show you why that's the case, why it's so important that we don't skip this and that we dig into this part of the story. Now, to do that, what I wanna do is I actually ironically wanna encourage you to open your Bibles with me and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Okay, so if you got a Bible, I want you to go to the book of Hebrews. It's gonna be found on page 842. So if you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one under the chairs. You can grab those, turn to page 842. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you can have that one. We'd love for you to have a Bible. You can keep that and take it home. So Hebrews nine. Now, the reason this is ironic is because I just spent a whole bunch of time telling you how important the Old Testament is and I'm taking you to where? To the New Testament. So you're like, what, 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 what's that all about? Okay, so let me just kind of explain the logic there. So um, the book of Hebrews is pretty outstanding, and one of the reasons it's so outstanding is because the book of Hebrews does a phenomenal job of explaining the significance of the rituals and the laws and the different ceremonies that are outlined in the Old Testament. I've oftentimes thought of the book of Hebrews. Here's a good way to think of it. It's basically the gospel according to the Old Testament. That's what the book of Hebrews is. So whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, they were very well versed in the Old Testament and they were writing to a group of people who were very well versed in the Old Testament. And what I think is so significant about this is I think that in Hebrews and specifically in chapter nine, we are going to see a phenomenal summary of and the significance of the Old Testament story. So you're like, what are you talking about? Okay, well, let me, let me go ahead and show you. So we're gonna start off in verse one. Here's what it says, Hebrews chapter nine, verse one. It says, now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. All right, so let's hit pause there for a second. So remember, this is Hebrews nine. And what that means is that there's eight chapters that come before this. So we're catching catching them in kind of middle of a thought process. And right here, the author of Hebrews is actually talking about the Old Testament. And so you'll notice when he says the first covenant, now the first covenant, Now, when you see that first covenant, that might sound like strange language to us, but basically, simply, he's just talking about the Old Testament. So sometimes the Old Testament is called the Old Covenant and the New Testament is called the New Covenant. Here he's like the the Old Covenant, the first covenant, the Old Testament, okay? So he's talking about the Old Testament. The first covenant had regulations for worship. All right, now what's he talking about there? Well, he's referring to all of the ceremonies and the laws and the different sacrificial system and priesthood and all those things. And so he's, here's, what, here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. In the Old Testament, there's a bunch of regulations. And if you've ever read the Old Testament, you're thinking, right. And he goes on to say this. And he says, and there also was an earthly sanctuary. Right, now, what in the world is that talking about? Well, if you look at verse 2, he's actually going to explain what he's talking about. And what does he mean by earthly sanctuary? He's saying, well, there's a tabernacle. There was a tabernacle that was set up. And now what exactly is that? So so let me just kind of talk about this for a second. If you're a person who's never read the Bible, maybe you're new to the Bible, one of the things that you would find if you started to leaf through the pages of the Old Testament is you would find that over and over again, throughout the story of the Old Testament, the Bible is gonna talk about this thing called the tabernacle. Later, it's gonna be called the temple. It's gonna be reconstructed as the temple. And what this was, what the tabernacle was, is it's actually something that God commanded his people to build. And it was basically the place where people would go to interact with God. It was the place where God's people believed that his presence would dwell. And so if you wanted to interact with God back in the Old Testament times, you had to go to the tabernacle or you had to go to the temple. It was the place where God was. And so people would go here to worship, People will go here to make sacrifices and to confess their sins. If you ever wanted to interact with God, you had to go to the tabernacle or to the temple. Now he's gonna go on. He's gonna say in the Old Testament, there was all these regulations and these rules. He's gonna say, and then there was the tabernacle. There was this tabernacle, the temple that was set up. And now he's gonna go on and he's gonna describe a little bit of how it was laid out, all right? So he's gonna say, now in its first room, there was a lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. And this was called the holy place, the holy place. So he's starting to talk through some of the details of how it's set up. Now we're not gonna get too in the weeds on this and we're not gonna, you can say a lot about this, but we're not gonna do that here today. But I think maybe to help us, just to give you a visual, let me just show you a visual depiction of what he's talking about. So this is an artist rendition of the tabernacle. Okay, so this is what the, some of you maybe have seen something like this before. This is what the tabernacle would have looked like. And later, when they built the temple, the temple would have followed this same schematic. It just would have been larger. Okay, so this is the temple. Now, what you'll notice here is that there was this curtain that kind of lined the outside, the perimeter of this thing. And what that created was something in here that was called the outer court. Okay, so this part right here was called the outer court. And so when when Jewish people, when God's people decided that they wanted to worship God or they wanted to offer sacrifices, they would go into the outer court and that was where they would interact with God. That's where they would worship and they would offer sacrifices and they would confess their sins. It was in this area right here. what's interesting though, and the writer of Hebrews is telling us, is that within this outer court, there was another covered tent spot right here, okay? Now, if you were to take off the covering and you were to zoom in a little bit, you would actually see that there's two different rooms that are within this spot. now the first room, and this is what the writer of Hebrews was talking about, there's this thing called the holy place. This is the holy place. Now in the holy place, there is these sacred and symbolic objects. And we're not gonna get into all of that. But basically this room right here, this is really fascinating. This room right here, only priests were allowed to go into that room. So any average person could go out here, but only the priests were allowed to go in this room. And they would only do that if they went through a very rigorous ceremonial cleansing, and they would go in there to offer sacrifices. And so the writer of Hebrews says that that was part of the Old Testament as well. Now look what he says next in verse three. He says, behind the second curtain, so he says there's another curtain, he said there was another place called the most holy place. So again, just to give you a visual, here's the holy place. And he says there's another place, another curtain. And he says, and back here was a second room, and that was called the most holy Or some of you maybe have heard of this before. It was oftentimes called the Holy of Holies is what it was referred to. And this was the place, so get this, uh, any average person was allowed out here in the courtyard, uh, in in that courtyard. The holy place, only priests were allowed here. In the most holy place, get this, nobody was allowed in there, nobody. Uh, With the exception of once a year, there was one person who could go in there And it was the high priest and he had to go through incredible ceremonial rituals to do this. And he went in only to do a very, very special offering or sacrifice, which we'll talk about here in just a second. And so this was the most holy place. And this is where God's people would think that God's presence dwelt really in the strongest form was in this room. Now here's what I think is so interesting and I actually wanna spend the rest of our time really processing through is that within this holy of holies, within this, the the most holy place, the Bible's gonna say that there was something in there, that there was something very specific that was in that room that was very significant and was very important. And what was it that was in that room? Well, I believe that what was in that room is maybe one of the best summaries of the entire Old Testament that we have. And what is it? Well, here's what the Bible's gonna tell us, all right? So in this room, it had the golden altar of incense and it had the gold-covered ark of incense The covenant. The Bible's gonna tell us that in this room, there's this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. Now I know exactly what some of you are thinking right now. And the answer is yes. This is the same Ark that's referred to in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Same one, all right? Same idea, same whole thing. So if you ever seen that movie, It's making reference to the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, it seems strange to us, maybe a little bit mystifying, a little strange. So let me see if I can help demystify this thing a little bit. All right. So the word ark, that word ark is actually a Hebrew word that literally just means box. It's a very very simple word. It just means box. So this was the box of the covenant or the container of the covenant. Throughout the Old Testament, it's sometimes called the ark of the testimony is what it's also referred to. And what I want you to understand about this thing is that this is this this ark, the ark of the covenant or the box of the testimony plays such a vital role all throughout the Old Testament of your Bible. You're gonna see this thing show up all over the place. It's just gonna be kind of all over the place. This was something that God had actually commanded his people to build, and he commanded them to build it with a great amount of specificity. And so God told his people, he said, when you build it, I want you to build it out of this type of wood. He said, I want it to be exactly these dimensions. And so the Ark of the Covenant was two and a half cubits long, it was one and a half cubit high and one and a half cubit deep. Now, just to help you out there, a cubit was a measurement that was the adult male's elbow to his middle finger. This was a cubit. So everyone go ahead, show me a cubit. Give me a cubit. All right, why do you turn your neighbor, give him a high cubit. Go ahead and go for it. I think we should make that a thing, high cubit. So anyway, a cubit, all right, that's what that is. And uh, actually, very sophisticated example and illustration for you here. I had a friend of mine help me actually build a box, very, very simple box, that was the same size as the Ark of the Covenant. So I thought maybe just to help you, this is just a, a visual picture of how big it would have been. So you're like, how big was the Ark? It would have been this big, exactly. So this is two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubit high, one, one and a half cubit deep. And that's what it was. And so God commanded his people to build this. And here's actually, I'll show you, this is actually not the best picture of it. This is a good artist rendition. And you can see this thing was very ornate. It was covered in gold, pure gold. And then there was these angels that were on top of it, which we'll talk about this here in just just a moment as well. And this seems so weird to us, but I'm just telling you, this thing was so important and so deeply significant in the life of the Israelite people and all throughout the Old Testament. This thing right here, the Ark of the Covenant, symbolized the presence of God in its fullest and most concentrated form. For the Israelite people, this was the place where heaven met earth, where God dwelt, was with the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but this thing was so important that when God's people were were in the wilderness and they were meandering around and wandering in the wilderness, wherever they went, do you know what they took with them? They took this with them. They toted it around with them. Now they were never allowed to touch it. If you touched it, you died. And so they would carry it with poles and only under God's command. This is the thing, this is crazy. This is the thing in the Bible that when the Israelites entered into the promised land, the Bible says that the Jordan River was split, that God split the waters. Do you know what it was according to the Bible in Joshua chapter 3 that caused the waters to split? It was this thing right here that did that. Uh, the Bible's gonna tell us that they would take it into battle. If you, went, if you grew up going to, uh, going to Sunday school, maybe you heard the story of Joshua and, and the battle of Jericho and how they marched around the walls until the walls came tumbling down. Do you know what they marched around the walls with? It was this thing right here. And the Bible's gonna tell us this thing's super significant to the Israelite people. In fact, when Solomon rebuilds the temple later on, Jerusalem is built, he rebuilds the temple. And do you know what they put in the Holy of Holies in the temple? They put this. And whenever people want to interact with God in the Old Testament, where do they go? They go as close as they can to this, to this thing right here. Now that seems weird to us, but here's where it gets even weirder, okay? It's because you think to yourself, so these people believe that God lived in the box, like God's presence was in the box. Is that what they believed? And here's what's crazy. No, it's actually not what they believed. The presence of God, according to Exodus chapter 25, was not in the box, but the presence of God was above the box. So according to Exodus 25, the presence of God was right here above the lid. It was between the angels. And so this is where God's presence was thought to be. There was no image here, but they believe that this is where God's presence was, which begs a really important question that some of you are thinking. Then what's in the box? What is in that box? And this is what Hebrews is gonna tell us. I'm just telling you, I think this is so cool. So what was in the box? Okay, check this out, Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verse four. The ark contained, first and foremost, the gold jar of manna, all right? So what is the first thing that was placed in this? The Bible is gonna say the first article that's in this box was a gold jar that was full of manna some of you are thinking, what in the world is that? What is that even talking about? Okay, well, let me help you out here. If you were here a couple weeks ago when Dan was teaching, you might remember he actually talked about this. This is referring to a period of time in the life of God's people, the Israelites, when they were in the wilderness for 40 years, God provided for them miraculously every single day. He provided for them this stuff called manna. Manna was literally daily bread. It was miraculous provision from God. So God's people would wake up in the morning, they'd be in the desert, and just like dew descends on the ground in the morning, manna would descend on the ground. And the people would go and they would gather this stuff and they would eat it and it would provide for them their daily nourishment and their daily bread. The Bible tells us that this stuff was so nutritionally perfect that it gave them everything they needed to survive. And God did this every single day day when the people were in the wilderness he provided so even right now when we pray give us this day our daily bread it's a reference it's all a reference back to this account that happened in the old testament when god would provide this stuff i thought this was interesting i was actually reading one jewish um scholar this past week a jewish rabbi and he actually said this i think it's probably speculation but i thought it was interesting he said manna was so nutritionally perfect he said that when you ate it, your body would fully absorb it without providing any waste product at all. And when I read that, I thought to myself, I don't know if I'd like that very much. Because just, just being honest with you, I kind of like that time of the day. And that might be, that might be too much information for you. But um, we like let's like keep it real and get to know each other here at the Medina campus. So you got that going on. But they would provide it. And, and so every day, they, God would provide this for them. The word manna, by the way, is the Hebrew word that means... What is it? That's what manna was. It was called, what is it? And so the people would come to Moses, and they'd be like, what is it? And Moses was like, what is it? And they were like, what is it? And he was like, exactly. And this could go on for hours, right, and this whole thing. I don't know if that actually happened. I'm making that part up. But, but this is what happened. God provided miraculously, graciously, overwhelmingly, every day, on repeat, for his people, But here's what's interesting, is the Bible's gonna tell us that even though God did this for his people, that their response was not one of gratitude, that their response was one of grumbling. And so their response to God's miraculous provision was not to be thankful for it, but it was to complain against it. In fact, I'll just show you one instance. This is in the book of Numbers chapter 11. The Israelites, after eating manna for some time, they said, if only we had meat to eat, We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, but now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. And so they started to complain to God. They're like, we just have manna all the time and we miss the onions and the leeks and the fish. And so they they grumbled. They grumbled against God's provision. And not only did they grumble, but I also want you to notice they romanticized the past. Do you notice this? I was chuckling at this this past week. Look at what they said. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. It was free. Do you guys remember why it was at no cost? They were slaves. (laughs) And and, and they just, how quickly they have forgotten what God has delivered them from. And God is gracious and ongoing in his provision, and yet they continue to grumble against him. And the Bible says that God eventually hears their grumbling, he gets tired of their complaint. He says, fine, you want meat? I'll give you meat. And he sends quail. And the Bible says that the quail come and these people gorge themselves, some of them even to the point of death in doing that. And what's fascinating is that God actually tells Moses, he says, I want you to take an omer of manna and keep it for generations to come so they can see the bread that I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought it to you out of Egypt. And then later, God's gonna tell Moses, take that jar of manna, I want you to put it in the ark. I want you to put it in the ark. Now, here's the question I want you to think about. Why? Why did God want him to do that? Well, here's what I want you to remember. Remember, this is the, the box of the testimony. And what is, a, what is a gold jar of manna testifying to? What is it testifying? Well, if you think about it, really a couple things, right? The first thing is it's testifying to the fact that God is graciously ongoing continually, lovingly providing for his people everything they need every single day. And so in one sense, it's a testimony to God's incredible faithfulness. But in another sense, it's also testifying to something else, isn't it? Because it's testifying to God's people and their grumbling and their complaining and their dissatisfaction with the way that he provides. And can I just tell you that that is not That is not just something that happened. It's not just one event. That is what happens on repeat throughout the Old Testament. You wanna know what the story of the Old Testament is? Here's, Here's a big part of it. It is a story of God's miraculous, ongoing, perfect provision, and yet humankind's inability to be grateful for our proclivity to not go towards gratitude, but to go towards grumbling. That's what it is. And let me just tell you this, and it probably, probably doesn't take much to convince you of this. That's not just something that happened in the Old Testament. This continues to happen, does it not? I mean, this is, this is so much of the human condition, isn't it? I mean, guys, just think about it for a minute. How, how faithful is God to give us exactly what we need when we need it? That Every, every day, he, just, he gives us what we need. He's so good to us. And yet what is the natural tendency of our heart? It's usually not towards gratitude. It's usually not to pay attention to the myriad of graces that we step into every single day. But usually it is that we are inclined to grumble and complain and look at what God has done and say, I wish you would have done it different, or I wish you would have done it my way. And it's the testimony, right? That's the first thing that's in the box, but that's not the only thing because look, Look what else is in the box. The Bible's going to say in Hebrews, the ark contained the gold jar of manna. And here's the next thing. Aaron's staff that had budded. And some of you are like, okay, now what in the world is that thing? All right, so let me, let me explain this a little bit again. Now, you've got to remember this audience was very familiar with the Old Testament and so they would have known what he was talking about. For many of us, we're not familiar with this story. But this actually is referring to a very famous account. In the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, verse six, uh, chapter 16 and 17, and you can read it on your own, but I'll tell you a little bit. I'll just kind of summarize for you the story. It basically talks about this dude named Korah, all right? So Korah was a very influential uh, Israelite man, Jewish man, and he uh, basically had a group of people that believed that they should be in charge. And so he and this group of people basically tried to overthrow Moses and Aaron's leadership. So Moses and Aaron, if if you guys aren't real familiar with the Bible, they were brothers and they were God's appointed leaders. They were the ones who led God's people out of the Egyptian captivity. They were the ones that led God's people through the wilderness. And basically this dude Korah comes along and he's like, I think I should be in charge. I don't know why you guys are in charge. I know God just as well as you do, I should be in charge. And so he tries to overthrow the leadership of Moses and Aaron. The Bible is going to tell us that God basically says this. He says, here's what's going to happen. I want every tribe to take their staff and I want them to put it outside. And he said, tomorrow morning, whoever's staff buds, whoever's staff blooms, that is going to be the leader of my choosing. So the next morning they wake up and Aaron's staff, Moses and Aaron's staff was the one that had budded. And what's fascinating is that God looks at this dude, Korah, and he says, it's not against Moses and Aaron that you are rebelling. This is what he says to him. He says, this is against the Lord that you and your followers have banded together. In other words, he's saying, you are rejecting God's provision of leadership in your life. That's what you're doing in this situation. And fascinatingly, God's going to look at Moses and he said to him, put back Aaron's staff in front of the ark of the covenant of the law to be kept as a sign to the rebellious. Moses did just as the Lord commanded him. So God said, take that thing, I want you to put it in the box. Put it in the box of testimony. Now think about this again. Why is that in there? Why is that in there? Well, remember this box is testifying, right? And what is that testifying to? Here's what it's testifying to. It's testifying to God's love and grace to provide for his people the leadership that they need. That's what it is. And at the very same time, it's a testimony of how the natural tendency of God's people is to resist and is to reject that leadership. That's what it is. And again, what I want you to understand is that that in so many ways is the entire story of the Old Testament. Like if you wanna summarize the Old Testament very quickly, here's a good way to do it. It is God's desire to lead his people. It is God's ongoing effort to lead his people and it is God's people's resistance and reluctance to follow his leadership and want to define things in their own terms. That is what Judges is about. That's what 1st and 2nd Samuel is about. That's what 1st and 2nd Kings is about. That's first and 2nd Chronicles. That's all of the prophets. It's all saying that same thing. There's actually a place in the book of 1 Samuel where God looks at his people and he says, I want to be your king and you'll be my people. And the people say, We don't want you as our king. We'd rather have a human king like all the other nations. And you know what God does? God says, fine, I'll give you what you want. And he does. And it's this resistance and reluctance to allow God to define and direct their lives. And can I just say again, that this is not just something that we see in the Old Testament. This isn't an isolated event. This continues to happen. And I think in the human heart, we see it in ourselves, don't we? That, that we, we refuse and we resist to allow Jesus to be the king of our lives that we push against his leadership, we push against his direction, and we choose to try to define and direct our own lives on our own terms. And so in this box, what do we have? We have, we have the jar of manna, we have the, the, the staff that budded, but there's one other thing that was in there, and here's the last thing. It was the stone tablets of the covenant. The stone tablets of the covenant. Now, the stone tablets of the covenant is probably the artifact that we're the most familiar with. What that's referring to is the 10 Commandments. So the tablets of the Ten Commandments were in this box. Now, many of us are probably somewhat familiar with this story. Moses goes up on the mountain and God in his grace, and his love provides these commandments, right? He says, this is the way I want you to live. As my people, I want you to flourish. I want you to enjoy life. I want you to become who I've created you to be. And he says, so I'm not gonna be uh, ambiguous about that. And I'm gonna tell you, this is how I want you to live. And he gives Moses the 10 commandments. And it's this beautiful, amazing story in the Bible. But what many of us might not know is that while Moses is on the mountain and he's receiving the Ten Commandments from God, the Bible says that there's something else happening at the bottom of the mountain. And what's happening at the bottom of the mountain? Well, let me show you. This is Exodus 32. It says, when the people saw that Moses was long and coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and they said, come, make us gods who will go before us. They just said, build us some gods. As for this fellow Moses... I don't know why I think this is so funny, but I do. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. We don't know what happened to Moses. Build us some gods. And so look what happens. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. And he made them into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And the Bible says that the people begin to worship this golden calf God that they literally just made right there. They're like, this is the God that saved you from Egypt. We just made it right now. And they started to worship it. And it's interesting because the Bible says that Moses comes down, he sees all that took place, and he took the tablets with the commandments on them, and he threw them, and he broke them. And then later on, God said, "Uh, Moses, um, can you write that down again? And Moses does, and then God tells Moses he said, put in the ark the tablets of the covenant of the law, which I will give you. I want you to put them in here. Now, why? Because it's all a testimony. God is is so faithful to tell us, this is the way I want you to live. He gives us his commands. He gives us his word. He says, listen, I want to communicate. I don't want to be ambiguous about this. I want to set out for you the way that you're designed to live. And yet what do we see? We see the inability of humankind to live according to that. And so here in, in this, in this ark, you have this testimony uh, in a powerful way of how God provides and how God leads and how God speaks. And yet how the human tendency is one, oftentimes to rebel and to wander and to destroy all the good things that God desires for us. Now with all that in mind, I want you to notice what happens next. So check this out. Above the ark, we're the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail right now. I like that. He's like, you know, there's this other stuff. He's like, but we're not gonna talk about that. We don't have time to get into that right now. And I'll tell you what's interesting is you got to remember that the writer of Hebrews was writing to a group of people who were deeply familiar with these things that he's talking about. So he's like, we don't need to get into the details. You guys already know what I'm talking about. But many of us don't know these details. And so I think it's important that we do take a minute and talk about the significance of this. So look what he says. He says, above the ark were the cherubim of glory. now, what is that talking about? Okay, so cherubim, uh, some of you might know this, actually a type of angel that's referred to in the Bible. Uh, Cherubim is plural for cherub. And I know for many of us, when we think of cherubs, what we tend to think of is we tend to think of naked babies with wings, that's what we kind of think of. So we think of an image like this. And I'll just be honest with you, I have no idea where that came from. Uh, Because in the Bible, the cherubim are these magnificent, terrifying beings that if you and I ever even caught just a glimpse of, we would be tempted to bow down and worship them. So the Bible tells us, they're actually described in the book of Ezekiel chapter one. These are the creatures that sit and dwell in the throne room of God, all right? That's the cherubim. And so God says, I want you to build these cherubim on top of the ark, these golden cherubim. There's two of them. And notice what he said. He said they need to be overshadowing this thing called the atonement cover. All right? So let me just kind of help you out here. The atonement cover was the lid. It's called the atonement cover. Sometimes it was called the mercy seat, the mercy seat or the atonement cover. And he said, and I want you to build these two angels, and they need to be overshadowing this cover. I'll show you again the picture. Maybe it looks something like this is what they did. Now, here's what's so fascinating, so interesting. When God commanded his people to build this box, he said, you need to build these two angels, these two cherubim. And he said, and they need to be facing each other, but they, they can't be looking at each other. He said, they need to be looking, they need to be looking down. And, and what are they looking at? And what they're looking at is they're looking at the lid, right? They're looking at the atonement cover, the mercy seat, or maybe even symbolically, they're not looking at the lid, they're looking through the lid, Looking through, the, looking into the box, right, into the box of testimony, and what do they see in in this? What, what's testifying in this box? You guys see what's going on here? Do you see this? This is a box. Here's a good way to think of it. This is a box of evidence. That's what this is. Before a symbolic heavenly jury, the throne room of God. This is a box of evidence. This is a box. This is a box of exhibits, and it's evidence of God's unbelievable, ongoing faithfulness to his people. And at the same time, it's evidence of the attitude of the human part. And it presents a dilemma, doesn't it? It presents a dilemma, because here heaven is looking down, and here is a perfect, just, holy God. And when it looks down and it sees the faithfulness and love and provision and care of God, all it sees in humanity is it sees its rebellion and its wandering and its destruction. And it prevents a dilemma. What is God gonna do about this, about the situation that we see it? Now, I want you to notice this next part. This is so cool. Verse six, when everything was arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry out their ministry. So he says the priests would regularly go into the holy place. But notice what he says in verse seven. He says, but only, only the high priest entered the inner room and that only once a year, and never without blood. When he went in, he had to bring some blood with him, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that they had committed in ignorance. Now, now I know maybe for some of you too, you're reading this and you're like, you see, that's my problem with the Bible right there. It's like, why, is it, why so much blood? Why is it all, the Bible's so gory, man. You read through it and why has it gotta, why has why it just gotta be so gory and so bloody? And let me just tell you that, that t- to miss this part, is, is so, it's to miss this crucial piece to the picture that God is trying to paint, it's essential. Because once a year, the high priest would go in and we go through ceremonial cleansing. So on the day of Yom Kippur, it was a day of atonement and he would make a very special sacrifice and he would sacrifice a ram and he would sacrifice a goat and he would sacrifice a bull. And then he would take the blood of those perfect animals. And do you know where he would put that blood? Do you know where he would spread it? He would spread it right here on the lid on the atonement cover, on the mercy seat. And so now, I just want you to see this. And so now, when heaven looks down into the human situation, when heaven looks down into this box, what is heaven seeing now? No longer is it seeing these these artifacts of evidence in the box of humankind's sin. But now what heaven is seeing is it's seeing the blood of a perfect animal It's the perfect blood that is covering over the sins that are within this box. Now, let me just ask you a question real quick. Does this sound familiar to anybody in this room? Does this sound like it's pointing to anything familiar, that there's the blood of a perfect one that covers over the sins of humanity so that when heaven looks down, it doesn't see our sin, but it sees, it sees some kind of perfection. And I'm telling you guys, this is all a picture. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us. All of this is just a picture. And what is the picture of? Well, look what he says in verse 11. When Christ came, when Christ came as the high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not part of this creation. He's saying, listen, This is all a picture, this is all a picture. And it all finds its culmination in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the true and is the perfect high priest. He's gonna go on and say this, he's like, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood to obtain eternal redemption for all, for all of humanity. He's gonna say in verse 15, for this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant." Here's what the writer of Hebrews is gonna say. He's gonna say, listen, all this stuff, the stuff in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the priest, here's what he's gonna say. It's all a shadow. It's a shadow. He says, but the substance is Jesus Christ. And now that the substance has come, We don't need the shadow anymore. We don't need the shadow because we have the fullness of who Christ is. Here's what I want you to understand. We cannot fully understand Christ without the Old Testament. And we cannot fully understand the Old Testament without Jesus Christ, because it's all painting this beautiful picture that culminates in him, in the person of Jesus. I know some of you are probably thinking to yourself, that's interesting, this is really cool, but what do I do with a message like this? What are some takeaways for me? So let me just close by giving you a couple simple, just just conclusions and takeaways, and then we're done. So some conclusions and takeaways. Conclusion number one, in a lot of ways, this is the story of the Old Testament, all right? I think this this is so symbolic of the story of the Old Testament in so many ways. The Old Testament on repeat, if you've ever read through it, It is this ongoing repetition of how God continues to be faithful, of how God provides, of how God leads, of how God reaches out and offers his word to his people. And yet it's humankind's inability to reciprocate that kind of faithfulness. And that is really in so many ways what the Old Testament is affirming and is validating over and over again. But not only is this the story of the Old Testament, this is our story. This is our story. You guys, can I just tell you, I believe that the Old Testament is so significant and we should never skip over it because in a lot of ways, the Old Testament is like a mirror. And it's intended to be such a thing that when we read it, that we, when we see it, we see ourselves, that it has a way of getting into and exposing the recesses of the human heart, which shows us what our natural tendencies and proclivities are. In a lot of ways, you know how I think of the Old Testament? I think of it like a black light. Do you guys ever see those videos where, where people will go into a hotel room and it all looks like pristine and they turn on the black light and you're like, Ugh, like, oh, dear Lord, I'm never going to a hotel again. Did you ever see that before? I think in a lot of ways, the Old Testament's like that. That in some ways, you know, to each other, we can look like we got it all put together. We can present something that looks really good. But man, when you flick on the light and you look at what's in our hearts, sometimes it's not pretty. I think the Old Testament does that for us. Here's the truth. The truth is, is that while there's some things that are in this box that are symbolic, here's the reality. is all of us, every single one of us, we all contribute to this box. I mean, you think about it. We could all put things in this box. We could all think of times that God has provided and we have just grumbled. We can all think of experiences where God has desired to lead us, but we have resisted that leadership. You can all think of times where God has given us his word because he loves us, but we've looked at it and we've scoffed at it. We decided to go our own way. We could fill this box and all of us have and all of us have. But here's the most beautiful part of this thing is that yes, this is our story, but it reveals to us God's radical grace. You guys, the whole point of this thing is not simply our radical sin, but the greater point is actually right up here. It's, it's the dilemma that God faced, but it also describes to us the radical extent that he went to, to, to create a space where we could be in right relationship with him. This whole thing points to how unbelievably valuable God's grace is. You see the Old Testament, the Old Testament is the human story. That's what it is. It's history with us in mind. And let's just be honest, it's messy and it's gritty. And sometimes we have a tendency to wanna to skip it or to edit it or to somehow kind of soften it. I just wanna tell you, there's no need to do that. There's no need to tidy it up because I think the whole point is that we need to feel the mess. I think, I think we need to feel the brokenness. I think we need to feel some of the destruction that we see here. And the reason is because to sand off the rough edges of the Old Testament is to miss the mess that God was willing to wade into to bring the story of redemption to its bloody, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him end. A you know, statement that I've latched onto is this one right here. I believe that the grace of God, the grace of God, God is so gracious, but the grace of God never minimizes the seriousness of sin. Never. But rather, it's only when we understand the seriousness of our sin that we can fully understand the grace of God of how incredible and how magnificent his grace truly is. See, the truth is we don't understand our need for grace if we don't see and understand the seriousness of our sin. That's why I think the Old Testament is so important, man, because it's gonna pull all of that into focus for us. that leads me to this last thing and with that, the band will come up. the last conclusion is this, is that God, God wants us to be defined by his grace and not by our failure. And I think that's the best news about this whole thing is that God so is so dedicated to our good and he is, so, he is so loving and gracious that His desire is not that we are defined by what's in our box, but He wants to define us by His grace and how that covers over our box. Like I said, the truth is, man, we all got a box, we all do. Some of you are well aware that you come in here today and you're toting a box. And in there, there's mistakes and there's regrets and there's stuff that you're ashamed of and you're embarrassed about. And all of us got that. All of us have a box. But the truth is God does not want you to be defined by that box. And and here's the reality. All of us are trying to cover this thing in one way or the other. Ever since Genesis chapter three, when we first felt shame, we've tried to cover up. And we try to cover this up in so many different ways. Now, for some of us, we try to cover up this box with good works. We think, man, I've done some bad things. If I could just outweigh the bad with the good, then maybe God will accept me. I'm just telling you, it's not how it works. Some of you are thinking, man, I just covered this thing up with religion, right? If I could just do enough good things and I could just earn God's favor, then that would, that would get me right, and that's not how it works. Some of us try to cover this guilt and shame with all kinds of things, man, substances and addictions and relationships and, and there's guilt and there's shame that's in here. But here's the truth, there is nothing that will cover this box except for the blood of Jesus Christ. And some of you might be thinking to yourself, but man, there's some stuff in my box. I don't know if God could ever forgive me. I don't know if God could ever love me. I don't know if he could ever accept, accept me. I've gone too far. And can I just tell you right now There's nothing, there's nothing that could be in this box that would ever outweigh the costliness of his blood. And God doesn't want you to be defined by that. He doesn't want you to to see yourself in that way because when heaven looks down, if you have given your life to Jesus Christ, when heaven looks down, it doesn't see that, but instead it sees the righteousness of Jesus and that liberates you and it frees you. And so listen, for some of you who are even here today, maybe you've never embraced that. Maybe you've never embraced Jesus. Can I just tell you, you don't have to get your life cleaned up to come to him. You come to him, you come to him and he'll forgive you and he'll cleanse you and he will offer you new life. And he wants you to be defined by his great love and his great grace for you. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I am thankful, so thankful that you know, the point of the ark is not our guilt, but it's your grace. And God, I'm so thankful that you, your desire is not that we are defined by our sin, but that we're defined by your grace. Lord, I just wanna to confess to you, it is true. You know, you're so faithful to provide and you're so faithful to give us everything that we need, that you wanna lead us, that you wanna guide us, that you wanna to speak to us. And yet, man, it just seems like inside of us, there's this deep inability to do those things. Thank you, God, that you've come, that you have come, and that you have created us, you have created the opportunity to make us right with you. And so, Jesus, I pray that even right now, as we have an opportunity to worship and sing, would we just come before you with hearts that are full, full of gratitude for what you've done. That we could cry out to you, we could sing to you because of how good you are to us. So, we just want to ask these things and pray in Christ's name. Amen.